Our reading is from Genesis chapter 26. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I'll be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister, because he was afraid to say, She's my wife. He thought, The men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she's beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She's really your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you'd have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, Anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there, and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham had died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water's ours. So he named the well Essek, because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, Why have you come to me, since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. 
Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm, just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, We found water. He called it Sheba, and to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. When Esau was forty years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basimath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. This is God's word. Let's pray together as we begin. Our Father, we've sung already of how good you are to us. Despite the fact we are sinners and we are condemned and we are unclean before you, you have chosen to set your love upon us if we're trusting in Jesus Christ. You chose us before the creation of the world. There is nothing good in us. And yet you chose us. What a wonderful God you are. So Father, please, this evening, would, uh, would those of us who know you, as we study this, uh, this curious set of incidents in the life of Isaac, would you deepen our trust in you as the God who always keeps his promises, as the God who wonderfully blesses his people despite their folly and fickleness? Would you deepen that trust? Would you awaken it if we don't know you? Would we be reminded this evening that you're a good God to foolish, reckless, sinful people like us? And would we praise you for it in Jesus' name? Amen. Uh, will God's people trust his promises? It's one of the most basic questions, I guess, in the whole of the Bible would ask. Are you going to trust God? And uh, very easy to give assent to it. If you're a Christian, you probably do. Do you trust the promises of God? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Of course you do. But of course, at times, it is just that much harder. And sometimes you don't even know it's coming. Uh, forgive some personal anecdotes. But uh, uh, this week, uh, Wednesday, was a funny old day for us in our family on Wednesday. So I uh, was working from home that day. And uh, about half nine, my wife called from work and said we had a terrible meeting. We just, the boss has come in and said, redundancies in the team. We're in the trouble. And, uh, redundancies are coming. Just prepare yourselves for that, everyone. Phoned up. My wife phoned up. Ooh. Oh, golly. Okay. Always unsettling to hear, isn't it? Half hour later, um, uh, adoption agency phoned up. Can you foster a child for, you know, next week? Take them into your home next week. Are you, are you good to go on that? Um, just, oh, God, that's, that's slightly unsettling as well. Can we do that? I don't know. Uh, this an email came in and someone had done something really foolish, someone at church. And all of a sudden, before I knew it, I was just, I was, I was, I had a wibble. Uh, I was just, I started to, I mean, there's no great logic to it. I know these things don't always come logically, but I just thought, what am I, this is, well, I don't know, there's chaos going, there's chaos everywhere, chaos on every front. Uh, I don't know, I don't know where to put my, I can't put a f- foot down anywhere, there's ice everywhere on the ground, and I just feel I'm slipping all over the show. And I just had a little freak out. 
Um, and I, you know, just put, pull yourself together, man. You're a Christian minister. You can't just sort of flip out and panic. Um, but the sort of my humanity overcame that sort of logical statement. I did. I just wanted to just feel like rolling up into a ball like a hedgehog and just hoping everything went away. I sort of, you know, there's sort of this panicking, but what if this and, and what if that and God, if this might happen and, and, you know, they start to get increasingly ridiculous, don't they? The what ifs, what if and what if Martians come and what if and what if. <laughs> you know, you start to really ridiculous what if scenarios. Anyway, enough of it. Come on. Shall we get it going? What are we doing? Back to Genesis 26. Ah. And I reread this chapter, and in all honesty, I, I laughed and said, Lord, you're very good, and I'm very stupid, because you are a God who makes promises and keeps promises, and I can trust you. I can trust your promises. And I'm a fool if I don't. Now that's Genesis 26, really. You can trust the promises that God makes. And you're a fool if you don't. Let's take a little bit longer to say just that. Because I guess the question being asked here in chapter 26 is, will God's people, in particular, will the patriarchs, will they trust God's promises? Or will they be equally feeble as me and flap and fail and roll up into a little ball and turn their back on him? Will they trust God's promises? If you were here last week, we started looking at this section of uh, the book of Genesis, slowly work our way through. But uh, this term, chapters 25 to 35, uh, looking at the life of Jacob. It's all one story, really, um, uh, uh, this block uh, together. And we looked last time at God's sovereign choice. If you were here, God chose Jacob in the womb to bless and not Esau. That was his free decision, and God decides to place his blessing upon people. And when he does that, it's very, very wonderful. It's an enormous privilege. It's not because Jacob deserved it in any way, but God was very kind to him. So Jacob received the uh, uh, the promise of God that he would receive the blessing that had been given to uh, his father and father grandfather before him. So uh, if you remember, he said, uh, the risk of oversimplifying, uh, Genesis 1 to 11 or prologue, fairly important prologue. Uh, but then in Genesis chapter 12, God makes wonderful promises to Abraham. This quad promise that uh, he promised to Abraham a great people and an enormous number of descendants living in a promised land. He would bless them and there'll be a blessing to others. That's a fourfold or quad promise. And it's a promise that drives much of the rest of the storyline of the rest of the Bible. And so Christians are uh, told they'll be part of a great people. Eventually they'll be in the promised land of glory the new heavens and the new earth. It is a, a wonderful blessing that you have now if you're a Christian, every spiritual blessing forward right. And uh, we bless others by uh, sharing the gospel with them. Now, uh, that promise was given to, uh, to uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and his story really runs from 12 to 25. 25 to, uh, to 35 is the story of uh, Jacob, and the rest of Genesis uh, 36 to the, uh, 37 to the end is the story of uh, Joseph. But here it's God has given promises. And Jacob is going to inherit them. That's kind of what we looked at last time. And then that's chapter 25. But chapter 26, just, we just need to pause a little moment on this um, by way of background so the rest of the sermon makes sense. It's in the wrong place, which is always a bit awkward when that happens. And uh, lots of people spill all sorts of ink about why 
was in the wrong place. Because chapter 25, mum and dad, Isaac and Rebecca, have got children, Jacob and Esau. And the whole chapter is about their warring children. Chapter 26, they've got no kids. We've gone back in time. Chapter 27 is about the warring children again. It would make perfect sense to go straight from 25 to 27 and miss out this chapter altogether, or at least put it earlier in the book. It's, it's in the wrong place. Now, of course, it isn't in the wrong place. It's been put here deliberately. Why? Well, there are a couple of things, I think. The, the first is this, is, this is Isaac's big moment in the sun, as it were. Uh, of all the patriarchs, or patriarchs, I think, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, that's really who I'm talking about. Of the four big figures in Genesis, Isaac lives the longest. Hurrah for him. He, this is it. This is his only chapter in the book of Genesis. The other, the other big hitters, Abraham, uh, uh, Jacob, Joseph, they get 10 to 12 chapters each. That's sort of impressive. This is it for Isaac. Why is this it? And what are we told about him? Well, two big things I think are here. One is, the emphasis is that Isaac gets the promises of his father. So loads of references to Abraham in this chapter. Almost as many as in the rest of the, the, the book uh, to come. Abraham, Isaac. So Isaac's inheriting the promises. But I think the main reason it's here is this. Isaac is really blessed by God in this chapter. All sorts of good things happen to him. And it's placed in between, if you were here last time, Esau throwing away the blessing of God. And next week, Esau again throws away the blessing of God. And in between those two chapters is just this one which says, Isaac knew the blessing of God and it's fabulous. So if you throw this away, you're a fool like Esau. Part of the reason this chapter is, and there's other things going on, but the big reason I think this chapter is here is to raise up how foolish it is to turn your back on the blessing of God. That would be a serious mistake. Uh, there are four main things we want to say, um, and uh, they're on the sheets. So God promises blessing. It happens a couple of times. Then um, we'll see this. It's blessing despite doubts, 7 to 11. Blessing despite setbacks, we call it, 12 to 22. Uh, and then very briefly, blessing comes without deception, blessing without beyond compare. We look at these, we work them through. The, main, the first two are where we spend our time. God promises blessing, 1 to 5. It comes despite the doubts of his man, and it comes despite all sorts of setbacks. Let's work through it. Briefly then, verses 1 to 5, God promises blessing. The Lord appears to uh, Isaac, uh, verse 2, and says, uh, don't go to Egypt, dot, 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 verse 3, stay in this land for a while, I'll be with you and will bless you. To you and your descendants, I'll give thee all these lands and confirm the oath I've swore to your father Abraham, your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, dot, dot, dot. These are the promises that were given to Abraham, but, but actually I think better. This little phrase, verse 3, I'll be with you and bless you. I mean, it's implied before, but God never says that to Abraham. So this is Isaac. You know, you're inheriting the blessing from your father and I am with you. You can trust me. It's a wonderful thing to hear. I am with you, says the Lord. There's a, so there's the promise. But there's also uh, instruction or command. Don't go down to Egypt, verse 2. Don't go down to Egypt. Now, 
If you were here last year, we looked at the life of Abraham, you might start to get a sense of deja vu. Because if you've got good memories, remember Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I'm going to, hear the wonderful promises I make to you. Okay, Abraham got them, they'll be fabulous, brilliant. There's a famine. Abraham says, I know I should stay in the land, but I'm going to Egypt. They got water there, they got the Nile. So he runs away to Egypt and pretends that Sarah, his wife, is not his wife, but his sister, to save his own life. And you come to this chapter and think, hmm, is this, is this just a poor author who's run out of plot lines? Is this just a EastEnders? You just have to recycle the stories after a while? No. No, the point being that we're meant to think, how is he doing compared to his father, Abraham? God is explicit here. He says, don't go. Don't go to Egypt where there's lots of water and it's obviously a sensible place to go if there's a famine. They've got all sorts of crops. Trust me. Stay where, I, stay where I've told you to stay, in Gerar. And he does. So that's good. Verse 6, Isaac stayed in Gerar. So a good start. God promises to bless this man, Isaac. Isaac says, you're the man, God. No, he doesn't say that. He says, God, I trust you. I'm staying. Brilliant. End of chapter. Super. Isaac is a hero. It doesn't quite go like that. Let's look at the bit more of the detail. So God promises blessing to him, and it goes well. But two things then. Blessing comes despite doubts. Verses 7 to 11. Verse 7. When the men of Gerar asked Isaac about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought, wow, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she's beautiful. bit less of a good bloke at this point, Isaac, isn't he? Willing to sacrifice his wife's honour in order to protect his life. Uh, letting other men perhaps, or opening up the potential that other men might sleep with her in order that he's okay. Somewhat less noble, less impressive. Why does he need to do that? God has said, I'll be with you. I'll protect you. Why does he do that? Well, anyway, it um, doesn't last too long because uh, verse 8, or oh, sorry, it does it last a while. When Isaac had been there a long time, so this had been the state of affairs for a while, the king, Abimelech, uh, looks out the window and saws, uh, sees Isaac caressing his wife, Rebecca, And the king says, hmm, something's not quite right here. And so he's come uh, explicitly, says to, um, immediately summons Isaac and says, she's not your wife, is she? Sorry, she is your wife. Uh, You don't do that with your sister. There's something a bit odd here. Why have you done this? Isaac answers verse 9. I thought I might lose my life on account of her. I thought I'd die. But Isaac, the Lord has said he's with you to bless you and look after you. Why are you doing that? And of course, the way the story works out, uh, Abimelech the king, he looks down, he says, "Uh, uh, Isaac, you are a fool. But eventually, verse 11, Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So God does look after Isaac, despite his stupidity here. God is there with him to protect him. But why is Isaac so inconsistent? He trusts God to feed him in a famine, 
but not to deliver him from death by beauty, as it were. Why so fickle? Why so inconsistent? Because, because he's like you and me. And in some areas of his life, he trusts God. It's all very clear to him. In other areas or at other times, he doesn't. But again, look how he, uh, he daydreams about all this. So verse 7, um, uh, verse 7, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah. Or verse 9, I thought I might lose my life on account of her. He moves to this new place and thinks, oh, what if? What if? What's? Look at all the dangers around me. Look at all the things that could go possibly wrong. And so he lies. Rather than trusting God who said, I'll be with you to protect you, he lies. Because of the what ifs. Because if it might be a bit like this, he put his wife at risk in order to, order to protect himself. What an idiot. But how like you and me that can be? Tempted to lie because of the what ifs. We'll use deception to perhaps protect ourselves, our comfort, our reputation, whatever it may be. It can be little lies at work. You know, what if, uh, what if he finds out that I wasn't in on Monday morning? What if happens? What might happen? Well, I'll just tell a little lie. Just, just a little deception, just to protect myself. Or just another relationships. What, what would they think of me if they know that, well, I, I just couldn't be bothered to go to their party because it snowed. Um, uh, and my car broke down. It's just a little lie, just to protect my reputation with my friends, just a little deception to protect me. It's quite common, isn't it? Why do we do that? Why does Isaac do that? Because sometimes you think, this is, I just need to protect myself. I had a funny thing this week. Um, last week, uh, you wouldn't, most people here wouldn't know this, but last week, school applications had to be in. You're applying for different primary schools, uh, and it's always a little bit of a bum fight. You put down your whatever, you rank them one to five, whichever school you want to get in, and people get their first choice and don't, etc. I was talking to one of, my, one of my neighbors. I said, oh, you know, X is, will be off to school in September, won't he? Uh, where do you want him to go? I want him to go to the, oh, the local C of E school. Oh, that's really competitive to get into, isn't it? Yeah, very hard to get into. Right. Uh, you think you'll get in? You know, well, hopefully. We, we did put down on the form that we go to church twice a month. Ah, oh, right. You don't. You're an atheist. That's what you've told me. No, no, we don't go to church. So you just lied on the form. I know, I know we shouldn't, but this was important. That's okay. So if it's important, you lie. You can smile at that. But we think that, don't we? Or maybe not think it, but we act that way. This is just important, so I'll tell a lie just to make sure I'm okay. What stops you lying when something is important? When you want to protect your reputation, a relationship, status at work? What, what stops you lying? Well, I think it's meant to be verse 3. The Lord saying, I will be with you. I will bless you. I was very struck by... Um, 
uh, one writer who uh, sort of comment, tangentially commentating on this passage. He puts only which uh, in my sort of funny wobble of Wednesday really hit me quite hard. Uh, let me read it to you. It'll probably come up as well. He put it this way. We frequently choose the way of self-protective deception for the sake of mere comfort or pleasure or reputation, forgetting the love of God demonstrated in the Lamb who died for us. If God did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us, can we not trust him with our lives? What weak and fickle people we are. That's just very simple and obvious, isn't it? If God would allow, as we've sung, his son to be abandoned and die for me, I can probably trust him with the minutiae, the little details of life. If he's done the most extraordinary thing, I can trust him. I really can trust him with the detail. So do you see the answer to deception for the sake of my comfort. It's just the gospel. It's just knowing that God who says, trust me, is a God who's demonstrated he's absolutely trustworthy by giving his son for you and me. Why would we not trust a God like that with the details of tomorrow? Because we're weak and fickle people. But we can trust him. We really can. So here, the Lord blesses um, Isaac, protects him. Despite his doubts, all goes well. Despite the fact that uh, Isaac is a bit of a loser here, the Lord protects him and blesses him. He's a good God. Let's move on. Let's take a little thing. Uh, There's blessing comes despite, well, let's call it setbacks perhaps, maybe better. Blessing despite setbacks in verses 12 to 22. Verse 12 then, uh, the author Moses is explicit. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year, reaped a hundredfold. Why? Because the Lord blessed him. All is well. Apart from, uh, actually, there are these two incidents that suggest it's not quite as straightforward as that. So the Lord blesses his man. He blesses his people. But even here, there's sort of constant setbacks. There's envy over food, food, excuse me, 12 to 16. And there's a fight over water, 17 to 22. We'll look at them briefly. There's envy over food in 12 to 16. See, the writer really lays it on thick. Do you see that? So uh, Isaac plants crops. He receives back a hundredfold, verse 12. Verse 13, Isaac became rich. His wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. The, uh, the author is saying, this man is wealthy and rich. Okay, that's his point here. All is going brilliantly. The Lord is demonstrably uh, blessing him. Now, again, we mustn't get carried away by these financial rewards, uh, as we've said before. In the uh, Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, physical blessings are tied to the promised land of Canaan. Whereas for Christians, we don't have that physical land. So we're expecting all our physical blessings, riches, perfect health, etc., in the next creation. And there's a sense in which the extravagant wealth that is given to all the patriarchs is a hint, a foretaste of what will happen. A foretaste of the curse being undone, of the fool being rolled back. Just a foretaste of what's going on here. Anyway, extraordinary, extravagant wealth uh, for Isaac, it goes. And yet... Verse 
15, there's sabotage. So the Philistines are grumpy about this wealth. So they fill in all the wells of Abraham. That's a bit mean, isn't it? You kind of need your wells in uh, that part of the world. And verse 16, the king gets grumpy. Move away from us. You become too powerful. Don't like it. Too wealthy. So it's okay. I mean, there's wonderful wealth, but it's not all smooth sailing. Verse 16, move away from us. Verse 17, Isaac moved away from there and encamped elsewhere. Now, we could easily move beyond those verses. It don't sound very extravagant. But you've got to think, here's a farmer who's become extravagantly wealthy because of his crops. And now he's kicked out to another part of the country without his crops. He's got to move home. I mean, perhaps this is like all of a sudden in your life, you lose your job in London, you lose your flat in London, and you have to move to, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not picking on a country, but you move to Belgium, rural Belgium, where your skills as a, whatever they are, a, a, your skills in financial services as a consultant or a trader or whatever it may be, are of less use in the farmer's fields of Belgium. See, that's what's being described here. Isaac's wealth is tied to the land. He's a farmer. And then all of a sudden he's displaced and put in a new place without the source of his wealth. That is wretched, actually. So not all smooth sailing. The Lord blesses him, but there's this envy over food. And then you get the second little thing, uh, the fight over water, verses 17 to 22. So um, uh, Isaac opens up his wells, verse 18. Good, he gives them the same names his father had given them. They're his wells. Uh, verse 19, you get a, a new well dug, but there's a fight over it. And so Isaac calls the uh, the well Essek, end of verse 20, dispute. Oh. Anyway, so they have another go, verse 21, dig another well, quarrel over that one. Sitna, verse 21, opposition. So to, to try and modernize what's happened to Isaac here, loses his job, loses his house, forced to move from the city where he's profitable to a region where he can do nothing. He's completely de-skilled. He gets a new job. He's made unemployed a few weeks later. He gets a new job and the company folds. At that point, you, you might be tempted if you're Isaac to say, I'm meant to be blessed by you. What's going on? And so even for God's man receiving wonderful blessings here, it's not all smooth sailing. And probably some of us just need to be reminded of that. Because it isn't all smooth sailing. You'd be a Christian. Most of us in this room probably are Christians. Well, okay, I'm a Christian, and now I'm expecting all life to go well with me. Well, lots does. But not everything. It's just not smooth sailing all the time. Why would you expect your life to be any different from Isaac? He's a patriarch. God speaks to him face to face. That's extraordinary. Why would you expect your life to be any easier? But sometimes we do need reminding of this. Uh, I was reading some stuff in the week. It was just quite, it was just a good, helpful reminder to me that actually, culturally, we can be a little bit feeble. That uh, if we live in, you know, for people like us gathered in this room who... Uh, live in 21st century uh, London in an affluent country with a good health system. And most here have 
useful professional jobs or the potential to gain them. Most, and I'm generalizing, most in the room would have parents or family members who, if actually things got really bad, would bail them out of trouble or at least help them. You could go and live with them, uh, at least. Most of us, actually, we, we're insulated from the worst crises of life in a way that if we were born, if we were here 70 years ago, say, would be very, very different. Most of us, I forgive this a slightly naff analogy, but most of us essentially drive through life, it's broad brush, I know, but most of us drive through life in a big old four by four. And if there's a pothole in the road, it's okay, we go through it. And uh, if there's muck on the road, it's okay, because we've got four-wheel drive and it doesn't matter if there's ice. And if someone runs out in front of us, we've got good brakes and slam them on and no harm comes. Seventy years ago, I guess you'd say, people were riding a penny farthing. And um, if there's a pothole in the we- in the road, you'd fall over. And if there's ice, you're sort of all over the place. And if someone runs out on you, you haven't got a brake, you just run them over. The um, my point, It's a silly thing, but my point is simply this. In many ways, our lives are so protected that when difficulties come, we, we collapse. Oh, it's not fair. It's not fair that there's a little difficulty. I mean, years ago, people were much more robust. When your life is hard, you deal with hardships often better. Now, Isaac here, he's God's man. He's the patriarch who's got the promises of God upon him, and yet his life is pretty hard at times. He's blessed, yes. There's plenty of hardships. We just shouldn't expect any different. Shouldn't be thrown by them. We just keep on trusting God. And eventually, yes, it comes. Verse 22. So eventually, third time, lucky with the water. We don't call it lucky, do we? We're Christians. Third time, uh, he trusts God. Verse 22, he moved on from there. He dug another well. No one quarreled with it. And he named it Rehoboth. D, with a little footnote, room. Growing room, room to flourish. So God has promised to bless this man, but he'll stretch his faith. And you and I just must expect the same. Expect the same. You've had read right at the very beginning. We know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. God will stretch our faith. It's part of his blessing. Life won't always run smoothly. But there is blessing. Blessing despite doubts. Blessing despite setbacks. Very briefly, we'll just spend a few minutes on the the second little cycle at the beginning of this chapter. Verse 23 to 25, the Lord promises blessing again. So let me just read uh, verse 23. Uh, From there, Isaac goes up to Bathsheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I'm the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. I'll bless you. I'll increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. The Lord uh, promises to bless him again. But this time in the chapter, no great tests. Actually, Isaac is blessed here and doesn't do a lot. It sort of all falls in his lap, as it were, by the providence of God. And I think, again, here acutely, we're meant to notice Isaac is blessed. I think we're meant to see in contrast to the behavior of his two sons that appear in chapter 25 and 27. So again, briefly, let's contrast him with Jacob, first of all. Because Isaac here, he gets blessing without cheating. Verse 26 to 31. Uh, Abimelech is back, verse 26. Uh, Last time, of course, he'd told Isaac to push off 
They're a bit fed up with them. So Abimelech comes back, verse 26, uh, with his uh, lieutenant. Uh, Isaac is, unsurprisingly, a little bit surly. Why have you come to me? You are hostile to me. You sent me away last time. But, verses 28 to 29, wow. Very different to the last conversation they had. Verse 28, we saw clearly the Lord was with you. So we said there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will not do to us any harm. Just as we didn't molest you, but always treated you well. Not strictly true, but anyway, we'll move on from that. And sent you away in peace. And now you're blessed by the Lord. Isaac, oh, it's Abimelech back. What do you want now? We just know that God has blessed you. We just, could you be kind to us? Oh. Oh, great. Well, that was easy. You know, I prepared myself for a pretty awkward conversation there. You know, one of my men had got a lump, big lump of wood behind his back just in case it turned nasty. Well, strange. Okay, straightforward. The blessing comes. He lands in his lap here. He doesn't have to do anything. I think we're meant to notice a contrast with Isaac. You hear last week, rather than, despite the fact God says to, I'm so sorry, a contrast with Jacob, despite the fact that God says to Jacob, I'll bless you. Jacob says, yeah, I'm not sure. I think I've got to grab it myself. I just can't wait. I haven't got time to wait for you to give me what you've promised. I'm just going to grab it myself. So Jacob grabbed after the blessing of God. He schemed and lied his way to it. Maybe encouragement here to us is, don't do that. Trust the Lord. Don't shut your ears to him and feel you've got to grab after his blessing. It's no good saying, well, God has not given me the the career I deserve, the family I desire, the money I desire. So I'm just going to have to grab after them myself. I mean, he's just, he's failed to deliver what I need, so I'm just going to grab after it. And I think the contrast here between Jacob, who does just that, and Isaac, who just waits and it comes to him, is trust the Lord. You can trust his promise. And Isaac was blessed. He didn't grab after it. It's not that this is discouraging us from to be active. It's just discouraging us from being active in a way that is contrary to the Lord. The blessing comes. He doesn't do a lot. He doesn't cheat, unlike Jacob. But the last little thing, he's blessed. He's blessed beyond compare. And I think really here, it's laid on thick, so we're meant to see what a fool Esau was for turning his back on this. Last little thing, uh, verse 32. Uh, Isaac's servants came, told him about the well they dug. We found water. They called it Sheba to this day. Okay, so another well, brilliant. Verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri, the Hittites, and Basimath, daughter of Elon, the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Why is this chucked in at the end of Isaac's chapter? It's just a reminder, Esau's a fool. He's a foolish man. Let me just review in this chapter what Isaac has been given. Isaac received protection from attack upon him and his wife in Gerar. He's protected from war 
with Abimelech and his troops. He's given prosperity, wonderful crops, loads of servants, water. He's given a space to flourish. He's given triumph over his enemies. Verses 26 to 31, those who are hostile have to come and say, no, we recognize that God has blessed you. Isaac, by the end of the chapter, has just been given everything. Great protection, great wealth, flourishes. And right at the end, we're reminded, and Esau turned his back on all that. What a fool. What a foolish man. Esau sold his birthright and the blessing of God for a bowl of stew. And here he's marrying outside of God's people. I think we're really meant to see, chapter 26, God piles up the good things that happened to Isaac in terms of wealth and security and protection and blessing. There's a stack of wonderful things that happened to Isaac here. Okay, there's hardships. It's not all smooth sailing. His faith is stretched. But even when he doubts God and does silly things, he's still blessed. And it's as if Moses, the author, says, have a look at that stack of wonderful things of how good it is to know the Lord. And now just look at Esau, who turned his back on that. Why would you do such a thing? Why would you turn your back on the promises of God? Now, I don't know how you trust promises. I was reminded today, in fact, my wife reminded me, because of all the snow. A few years ago, we went to, uh, we went to Norway to visit some friends in Norway. And for one and only time in our lives, we went cross-country skiing, which you may be good at it, and well done you, I think is a torture. Um, downhill skiing, nice, fast. James Bond. Um, uh, cross-country skiing, I was, like, I was like a giraffe on an ice rink. It was terrible, embarrassing, couldn't go anywhere, very humiliating, an enormous amount of effort to go meet. We were on this little hike, and uh, these wonderful Norwegian uh, guys are saying, we must keep going, keep going. I promise you, the view at the end is worthwhile. I promise you, the view at the end is worthwhile. Thinking, oh, do I trust you? I don't know. And uh, about halfway, some people just gave up. They had a nice fire and food. That was very tempting. And this one chap in particular said, no, man, no, I promise you, the view at the end is worthwhile. We kept going. Got to the end, magnificent view over all these fjords. Fabulous. He was right. On what basis did I trust him? I don't know. He seemed like a nice bloke. And when I got there, it really was worthwhile. But you see, when you have chapters like this, God is saying, trust me, look, I'm a nice bloke. Trust me, because I always deliver on my promises. Trust me, because I've done the extraordinary thing for you. I've given up my one and only son for you. Trust me, you can trust me. And let me remind you, you don't have to wonder, will it be a worthwhile vista when you get there? The blessings of knowing me now are enormous in terms of you know that I'm caring for you. You know you can trust me despite wibbly Wednesdays when you everything flies at you. You can trust that I'm working for your good. And eventually, I assure you, says the living God, when you arrive in glory, the vista is extraordinary. Because you'll see me face to face. So we come to these chapters. Will we trust the promise of God? Very easy to say that, isn't it? It's very easy to trust him. 
He's absolutely trustworthy. The blessings he delivers now and in eternity are so wonderful. Trust him. We'll have moments of doubt. Trust him. Things will go wrong. Trust him. Don't give up on him like Esau did. Trust him. Let's pray together.